This is Luke 23, verse 34. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. We are now witnessing the climax of the gospel. The God-man, Jesus Christ, sinless, perfect, the word made flesh, has been wrongfully crucified. The most scandalous injustice that a political system has ever produced, and yet this was God's perfect plan. Predestined before the foundations of the world to show God's display of love, justice, his hatred of sin, his wrath, his grace, his patience, all by sending his one and only son to the cross like a quiet lamb led to the slaughter. In the midst of being tortured, whipped, spat upon, beaten, and nailed to a cross, Jesus prays a prayer to his father, declaring forgiveness to be applied to those that gambled for his garments, those that tortured him, and you, me. Jesus willingly went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, the joy of one sitting at the right hand of the Father, and two, he went willingly to the cross so that we as Christians will now not grow weary and lose heart in the midst of our own suffering. So as a Christian, what should our response be? And I have three points. One, let us respond with repentance. Romans 2.4, God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. Remember the kindness of our Lord Jesus who endured the cross to save you. Number two, worship him. Be in awe of his mercies and grace bestowed on you. God providing a way of salvation through the death and resurrection of his son Jesus. It's the only way. It's the perfect way. And three, fix your eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12 Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. But perhaps someone here in the room is not a Christian. So what is the application of this passage to you? My dear friend, your ignorance keeps you guilty. You see, Jesus' garments were divided. People scorned and mocked and hit Jesus, not knowing what they were doing, based on not knowing that Jesus is God, for they wouldn't have done that if they knew Jesus is God, if they believed. They still needed forgiveness applied to them because their sin put Jesus on the cross, and so does yours and mine. Every breath you take is borrowed by God. That brain of yours, he gave it to you. And every breath you take while not repenting of your sin, turning to Jesus as your only hope and savior is an offense to God. For he killed his son 
for your sake. I urge you, friend, repent. Surrender to the Son. He will save you if you call out to him for forgiveness. Jesus' second saying from the cross is recorded for us in Luke chapter 23, verse 43. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. To give us context as we reflect on this glorious saying of our Lord, I'm going to read the preceding verses as well, beginning in verse 35. The people stood watching and the rulers sneered at him saying, he saved others, let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him and came up to offer him sour wine. If you are the king of the Jews, they said, save yourself. Above him was posted an inscription, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there heaped abuse on him. Are you not the Christ, he said, save yourself and us. But the other one rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, since you are under the same judgment? We are punished justly, for we are receiving what our actions deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. So in this passage, we see a tale of two kingdoms. We see the kingdom of men on full display in the arrogant blasphemy pouring forth from the religious leaders. He saved others, let him save himself if he is the Christ of God, the chosen one. Pouring forth from the soldiers, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. And even pouring forth from a thief, a thief that has been condemned to death Nails driven through wrists and feet, suffering the same excruciating pain that Jesus is enduring. Picture this thief pulling himself up so that he can fill his lungs with enough oxygen to speak, and then using what little breath he inhaled to mock Jesus. Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. This is the kingdom of men laid bare. The wages of sin, death, are closing in, but marked by unrepentance and pride, the response is to shake a fist at God, to mock God, to revile God. The kingdom of men is filled with men and women that want to be freed not from their sin, but merely from the consequences of their sin. And when God does not deliver them from the harvest their sin has reaped, they respond in anger and hatred towards him. But praise God, there's a second kingdom that shines through in this passage, a better kingdom, an eternal kingdom. The second thief, not swayed by any voice in the crowd, delivers a scathing rebuke to the other criminal. Do you not even fear God? We don't know much about the second thief, but this we do know. He was given eyes to see and to confess his own guilt before a holy God. We are punished justly, for we are receiving what our actions deserve. He was given a heart to believe that Jesus is who he says he is. This man has done nothing wrong. And as he cried out to Jesus for his salvation, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. 
he was given such blessed assurance. And Jesus said to him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And with those words of assurance, Jesus ushered this repentant thief into the kingdom of God, a kingdom whose people are marked by a hatred of their own sin, a zeal for the Lord, and complete dependence on God to save them according to his great mercy. So what about you? What kingdom has your allegiance this evening? Do you desire to be saved from your sin or merely from the consequences of your sin? Do you see Jesus as him who for our sake God made to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God? If not, then I urge you this evening to become a citizen of a better kingdom. Repent of your sin, believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and that he has done what he says he has done. Take hold of Jesus' glorious kingdom promise that you will be with him in paradise. Our third word tonight comes from John 19, 26, and 27. So when Jesus saw his mother and the, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own home. Let us look upon the Lord Jesus Christ as his broken and battered body hangs upon a Roman cross and reflect on the words he said. As Jesus takes the punishment for the very people he's addressing and for all of us who would repent and believe, where do his thoughts go? In a divine display of humility, love, obedience, and servitude, our Savior charges the Apostle John to care for and support the needs of his mother thereby fulfilling the command to honor your father and your mother. How justified would Jesus have been to turn his thoughts toward himself? Instead, he suffered and died willingly for our sins, thinking of others in his final moments of agony rather than turning his thoughts inward. How, how many of us can honestly say that we would be worried about the needs of another in such a moment? How many times a day are we all given opportunities to die to ourselves and to serve another and yet fail to do so because of circumstance or inconvenience? My brothers and sisters, may we dwell often on the example set forth by the perfect Son of God as he put God's commandments and love for others before himself even as he bled and died for crimes that he did not commit. This is the fourth saying of Jesus Christ from the cross, as recorded for us in two places from Matthew 27, 46, and from Mark 15, 34. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabbathani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
I think there's a temptation that stands before all of us tonight as it relates to this verse. I think that there's a temptation within all our hearts to have some level of, of thinking that we understand what's going on here with Jesus. We try to commiserate. We can say things like, I know what it feels like to be forsaken by God. I know what it like, is like to be abandoned by God. So, Jesus, I get it. I know where you're at. And friend, while you may have in one point in your life gone to this verse, as Jesus is going to Psalm 22, and if you try to understand your experience and struggle, you may have come to a point where you realize and you're trying to wrestle with, what does it feel like to be abandoned? But friend, hear me. You know nothing of what it's like for Jesus right now. Well, why? Friend, if you were honest, left to yourself, you don't want God. If you were left to yourself, nothing in you would naturally move towards God. Yes, you may want the gifts. You may want eternal life. You may want protection. You may want the security. But we always want the gifts and the blessings, not the giver and the blessed one. We always want the protection, not the protector. We always want the security, but not the rock, which is solid for our souls. We want God, but we want a God in our image who we can control, not the true and living God. So friend, you do not know what it means to say, my God, why have you forsaken me? You may respond, that's not true, I need God. The biggest problems in my life have to do with what God has not done for me. God has abandoned me. That's why I'm poor, that's why I'm sick, that's why I'm lonely. I'm not coming to him because he has failed me. But friend, why do you sin? Why do you not give God naturally the honor and glory he deserves? We may say we want God, but every sinful thought Every sinful desire, every sinful word betrays that you would rather live for yourself apart from God. Friends, God has not forsaken us. We've forsaken him. And he's just giving us what we want. And that's what makes these words so stunning. Because Jesus the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, the one from eternity past who lived in perfect harmony and communion with the Father, the one who has never sinned, the one who has always obeyed the Father's will, always abiding in the Father's love, he is forsaken. He is abandoned. My God, why have you forsaken me? For a few hours, the beloved of God, the Son of God, experiences for the first time the abandonment of the Father. We, if left to ourselves, would want to be abandoned. The Son's heart breaks as the Father turns from him. So friends, we, left to ourselves, want to be forsaken. Jesus was forsaken for you. He became sin so that you would become righteous. He died so that you may live. And he was forsaken so that by faith you would never be.
Our fifth reading is John 19, 28. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I think we find here assurance that Jesus fully accomplished salvation for us upon the cross. First, consider with me that by expressing thirst, Jesus is identifying himself as fully man. This is so important because we needed a man to stand in our place to pay for our sin. We needed a representative man to mediate between us and God. Hebrews 2.17 tells us that Jesus had to be made like his brothers, that's us, in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. So in saying these two words, I thirst, Jesus shows us that he has a human body, he needs water, he is fully man, and is able to stand for us as the second Adam and bear the sin of man. We are assured that this is the sacrifice that needed to be made for our sin. But then we know that Jesus is fully God, and I think we see just a glimpse of that in the comment that the Apostle John makes here. Jesus says, I thirst to do what? To fulfill the scripture. As I look at these words, I see Christ's Godhood as he casts his mind over the scriptures that he authored and focuses in on one tiny prophecy. I see Jesus knowing his own word in minute detail, knowing exactly which scriptures he's fulfilled so far and when each remaining scripture needs to be accomplished. And then that brings me to one more interesting phrase in this verse. Jesus knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. I find it fascinating that John tells us that Jesus said, I thirst, knowing that all was now finished. It would seem that at this point, Jesus has borne the full wrath of God, and all that remains for his time on the cross is for him to die. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said that he has the authority to lay down his life and to take it up again. Jesus could have just said, all is now finished, sin's paid for, we can skip that little bitty I I thirst prophecy and get to the part where I lay down my life and this horrific torment is over. But there's one last tiny scripture that Jesus needs to fulfill on the cross that he put into his word for himself to fulfill. And so he fulfills it. And I find such encouragement when I think that if Jesus was so meticulous in this smallest of details, would he be so careless or clumsy to forget to pay for even one sin? Brothers and sisters, this is our great Savior, Jesus, who fulfilled every last bit of Scripture, can be trusted to have paid for every last bit of sin. Jesus, this glorious Christ, accomplished it all, And we see that complete salvation as he utters one small phrase, I thirst. Our sixth scripture comes from Luke chapter 23, verse 46. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. 
My mind kind of raced where we could go with this passage when I was assigned this task uh, to share it with you guys. And I started looking at the verses before and the verses after and trying to piece things together. And I was thinking, man, it's so cool how darkness covered the earth in the verse preceding this. And I was thinking about creation and how the Trinity was there how God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit was present there. And just here we see these three uh, persons mentioned. But then I thought, no, that's not reflecting on the words, though. So I want to read these words again. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now, Jesus is hanging on a cross. He's struggling to breathe. And he says this with a loud voice. And at first glance, you would think this is a prayer to God. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And it definitely is that. But he's pronouncing this with a loud voice. In the Greek, it's actually, I don't know how to pronounce it in the Greek, but it's megaphone. I'm using a microphone. You guys can hear me. But imagine me speaking into a megaphone this is for the people to hear. And we've we got to think about who his audience is that will hear these words. These are Jewish people. These are Pharisees. These are people, as Jordan mentioned before me, they know the scriptures also. And Jesus quotes scripture here with his final breath, you could say. And the scripture actually comes from Psalm 31. And it's verse 5. And I wanted us just to spend a little bit of time in Psalm 31 because this is just amazing that Jesus goes to this passage here. And Psalm 31 verse 5 says, Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. Could you imagine being in the audience and hearing Jesus, the one who was crucified, saying, you have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. And I could just imagine these guys that know the scripture and they'd probably start thinking about the other passages in this psalm. This is a great psalm of comfort. Like you would go to this psalm to find comfort in time of trial, in time of opposition, when you're being shamed. And let me just highlight some of the verses for you guys. Verse 8 says, And you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. But wait, Jesus was delivered into the hands of the enemy. Verse 17, O Lord, let me not, let not, excuse me, O Lord, let me not be put to shame. Jesus was shamed. He was stripped. He was beaten. He was spit at. His beard was pulled out. Verse 18, Let the lying lips be mute which speak insolently against the righteous. Jesus was falsely accused. They had to find people to lie in their testimony so that Jesus would be convicted. Verse 20, in the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. These were the very men that plotted against him. And I can't imagine what's going through their minds. What, what is he saying? This is a psalm of comfort. But the psalm starts out this way, Psalm 31. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me. Rescue me speedily. 
be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. And it talks about about, uh, this idea of redemption later on in the psalm. And I, I can't help but think, Jesus, hanging there on the cross, quoting this scripture, where is Jesus' ransom? My friend, Jesus was the ransom. He is the redeemer. You see, in order to be ransomed, there's the person to be ransomed, and there's the person that needs to have the debt paid to them. Jesus was the ransom payment. He was the one that was hanging on the cross, paying that debt that we could have never paid. Jesus, even in his dying moments, cries out to the people and gives them a glimpse of who their Redeemer is. He became their ransom. He took their shame. He bore the insults. He suffered under the evil plots of men. He was beaten. He was crucified for me and for you and for everybody that heard those words there. That message was for them. And he, he said those words. And we read in Psalm 31 here, it's so that we might find refuge in him. John 19.30. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, gave up his spirit. Before he dies... Jesus utters three last words. Actually, in the Greek, it's just one word. After all of this, after everything Jesus had been through the past three years, there was just one more thing that Jesus had to say. Finished. Other Gospels tell us that he said it with a loud voice. It's important to know. It wasn't that at the end of all of it, he goes out with a weak and tired and sad and pathetic whimper. Instead, at the end of it all, Jesus straightens himself up one final time, takes a, a deep breath of oxygen, gives a shout of triumph. It's the victory cry of a conquering warrior who has just gone toe-to-toe with the deadly enemy, and he has crushed his skull and vanquished him. Tetelestai, which means finished, accomplished, completed. All that I went to this cross to achieve, I've done. He's perfectly revealed God the Father to us. All of those Old Testament prophecies, all those Old Testament types and shadows, all of the stories that hinted at something more to come, all of those things now give way to the reality of Jesus and his finished work. And as Jesus shouts the war cry, Genesis 3.15 is being fulfilled where God said to the serpent, the devil, you will bruise the heel of the seed of the woman. But guess what? He will crush your head. And as Jesus declared victory in that final shout, all of those Old Testament animal sacrifices suddenly became obsolete as they're now superseded by Jesus Christ, the perfect sacrificial Lamb of God. As the book of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews chapter 9 He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. 
Injustice is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. And since it was all finished, and Jesus had won, Jesus willfully gave up his life. Text says he gave up his spirit. Now, don't miss that. It's really important. Jesus is in control. Jesus is in charge. And that's exactly how Jesus told us it would be all along. He plainly told everybody that no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Pilate cannot kill Jesus. The Roman soldiers cannot kill Jesus. That, that brutal scourging that Jesus received, a kind of scourging that was known to kill men even before the crucifixion, even that kind of brutal beating can't kill Jesus because Jesus will not die until Jesus is good and ready to die. His love for you kept him going. His passionate commitment to save sinners from eternal exile in hell and to earn you a home in heaven kept him alive, kept him hanging on that cross. He would not die until he had finished the work of paying for sins on the cross. As that wonderful hymn says, it was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And now that it is finished, guess what that means? It is finished. (laughs) That means if you trust Jesus, all of your sins are forgiven. No more living in guilt. No more living in shame. He took the guilt and the shame for you. No more living in fear of judgment. Guess what? He took that for you on the cross. No more trying to do good works to earn the favor of God. He has done all of the good works for you, and you already have favor with God through Christ. His righteousness has been given to you as a gift. And so guess what? It really is finished. It really is. Some of you tonight might be sitting here battling a lot of guilt over things that you have done in your past. Those things are just coming back to haunt you. If you're trusting in Christ tonight, you need to believe that it is finished. Jesus has completed the work. Your sins are, 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 are removed as far as the east is from the west. And you, and you might struggle with that. You might say, well, Deemer, don't you know all the bad things that I have done in my life? I mean, I've got, I've got stories that would, you just would not believe of the things that I have done, the acts that I have committed, the things that I have, that I have fought. You don't know all of those things. And I would answer, I don't know all of those things. And guess what? I don't need to know. There's only one thing that I need to know, and that, that it is finished. Deemer, you don't know how many times I've kept falling into the same stupid sin over and over and over again, and, 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 I, and I promised I wouldn't do it anymore, and then I fell back into it again. You don't know all about those things, Deemer, and I don't know about those things. But one thing I do know is it's finished. It is finished. And so the question for you tonight is not what you have or haven't done. The, the issue is is do you believe Jesus when he said it's finished? You say, well, Deemer, sometimes I struggle with belief. 
My faith is not perfect. I'm like that guy who came up to Jesus one time and said, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. My friend, if that's you, and your heart reflects that prayer, I believe, help my unbelief, then even the sin of your less than perfect faith is covered by the blood of Jesus because it's finished. If you're here tonight and you do not know Jesus, maybe even playing the religious game, but you really haven't received him, you really haven't repented of your sins, you haven't placed your faith in him, you're just, you know the lingo, you, you can talk the talk and all those sorts of things, but Jesus is not really your Lord, you don't really know him relationally. If that's you, tonight is the time, my friend, to apply the finished work of Jesus to your own life. Because here's the thing you need to know. If you try to deal with your sins on your own, it will never be finished. It'll never be finished. You will spend forever in hell paying off your debt. That being abandoned and forsaken by God that was talked about earlier, that will be you for eternity. You don't want that. Friend, Jesus didn't go to hell for nothing, and he didn't go to hell, as some of you might be thinking. He experienced hell on the cross. That's when he suffered the hellish wrath of God. He didn't go through hell for nothing. He went through hell to save sinners like you, so you wouldn't have to experience that. So that means it's time for you to do what you may have been putting off for a long time, maybe even for years. It's time to give your life to Jesus and trust in his work on the cross because in Jesus, it is finished. Well, thank you so much for coming to worship the Lord Jesus Christ, the the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. If um, you're not a normal attender of Harbin's, I'm so glad that you were here as well and, and hope you'll come back uh, to be with us again. Let me leave you with this, uh, this final scripture. This is the, the aftermath of, of the things that we were just talking about this evening. This is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the Son of God. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James, the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him and There were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And when evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council, who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear that he should have already died. Summoning the centurion, he asked him whether he was already dead. And when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. 
And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapped him in the linen shroud and laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock. And he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Father, thank you for this evening. And thank you that what we have just read is not the end of the story. Something more is coming. Something glorious. Thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen.